Hello there, and welcome to Music Speaks. My name is Sean Rancunas, and alongside me, as always, is Mary Hannix and Hunter Sagona. And we will continue looking into Professor Corporan's music playlist. And before we get started, you always hear a quick ad for our friends from Anchor. And please enjoy. All right, and we are back from our break here in our uh, part two with uh, Professor Eugene Corporan and uh, his uh, Desert Island playlist here. And uh, Professor, we start section two with um, the Beatles song, She's Leaving Home. And, you know, when you say Beatles, obviously I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's the first thing that generally comes to one's mind. So I'm curious as to why you chose this one. Well, it's another story, isn't it? Yes. Uh, it's a, it's another uh, captured moment. Um, and and uh, I wasn't thinking that way necessarily when I was putting all these together, but that's kind of how it came out. And it's another story about a she. Ah. Um, uh, Lonesome Susie, she's leaving home. Kissing of summer lawns. I mean, all of those. Maybe it was just that day. I don't know. But uh, 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 well, you were you were talking to a she. Maybe that's it's my right. Fault. I was just I was going. That's right, Mary. That, Mary. Um, so uh, the Beatles have such a huge impact on all of us that uh, uh, were around when they came on the scene. And um, and uh, I can remember my mom really liking some of the very early Beatles tunes that were pretty, you know, uh, that they there were no reflection of where they were going to end up. Let's put the it vanilla. that vanilla, mm -hmm. vanilla yeah. Beatles. Yeah, and um, uh, the uh, I I actually saw them on Ed Sullivan. You know, the first yeah. time they were in America. Uh, so um, that group, it's like they weren't even the same group and they didn't even look the same by the time they got to where they were going to go. Right. It was like somebody had taken over their bodies and they grew beards and hair and started <laughs> looking like hippies. And as opposed to uh, these guys in suits with no uh, lapels and um, this kind of uh, salad bowl haircut. Um, they looked like a doo-wop group. Yeah, they really did. Pointy show, pointy shoes and uh, you know, tight pants. Um, but, the uh, the impact on on I think on music in general, especially as they broaden their uh, orchestral palette and timbral palette, uh, and um, the kind of connection to bands too that was kind of interesting. Um, all uh, uh, you know that Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I I still have a poster in in my hallway here that someone gave me that they picked up at hate in hate ashbury and um i i had it framed it shows a uh, a band um uh actually of of uh native american or white people dressed as native americans very inappropriately um from the like that 1890s or something from some indian day celebration but i cut out the sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band more, uh, uh, banner and stuck it on that. <laughs> so it, uh, the whole idea of uh, evolution and revolution, 
in music and and uh, the uh, um, the studio recordings especially where they began to just add in so many layers of uh, sounds and um, uh, even something as simple as people talking in between lyrical lines. And I mean, all, all of that that went on was really pretty amazing. But um, I, I found the lyrics uh, to, to Lonesome Susie um, to be uh, so, um, real once again you know oh you mean she's leaving home for the Beatles I mean, she's leaving home excuse me she's leaving home thank you um <laughs> yeah both of those kind of have a similar kind of aesthetic impact to me but yeah this idea of a story about something sad mm -hmm. you know and um but necessary but necessary and how how they get how he gets to that um and they get to that and such in what three minutes yeah, you feel like you've been to a three-hour movie. I mean, the visualization, uh, the the creative ability to visualize, and then transfer that visualization to others through a song, just just freaked me out. And yeah, uh, I just thought it was an amazing accomplishment, which is what a lot of great songs do. Um, a know, very different. It's a different song for them. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry. There was a lag. I didn't realize you were still talking. No, that's right. You're, I'm, I was done. <laughs> no, all I was going to say was like, you know, the, the way the strings are used in the piece, there's this sense, and I feel like it goes with what you, what you had mentioned um, about like taking you on this almost movie-like journey. Um, the strings are used in such a way where it gives this like sense of building, and then it builds and yet shows this like massive restraint without going over, like it doesn't really build to a massive climax. It sort of leaves you wanting, which I feel like is like a yearning sense that maybe they were going for in the song, uh, which is a very, very creative use of it. Yeah, I mean, at least you're thinking, how did it work out? Uh, write another song. Yeah. <laughs> Give me two years later. I hope she's happy. You know, <laughs> <laughs> she gets so pulled in, you know. Um, exactly. Yeah. And right, you want that follow-up. Having that ability has a lot to do with um, great, com great composers in general. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you when you play a really great piece, you think to yourself, there's hopefully there's more to this story. There's more to this story that could be written, you know, and um, when you get to the end of Appalachian Spring, you want to you want to see the next two years of development in this mm -hmm. particular piece or or Prague uh, 1968 or, you know, you, you think about these pieces that take on uh, it's not so much that there's a pro well that's very programmatic of course but um the beatles tune but um i think there can be story even in a piece that doesn't have lyrics or doesn't have um a programmatic content mm -hmm. but it's in your own imagination and it's maybe not even important to share that story with others you can as a way of working on it but sometimes you run the risk of it. Well, if I share my story, then you won't make up your own story and that's not such a good thing. So right. sometimes it's a personal thing that I I, uh, I imagine. I know David Childs does this a lot, uh, um, our euphonium teacher. His dad taught him to use his imagination, be imaginative with, the, with his playing. And you can even see sometimes when he plays, he kind of looks up and 
you can see him thinking uh, before he makes the next phrase about now where's the story going to go. Mm-hmm. And um, it's his story. It's not something he expects you to be able to write out when it's over, uh, but it keeps him connected to the sounds he's making. Mm-hmm. I just finished a, a presentation at Midwest on storytellers and guides uh, talking about soloists who've played with with uh, us at North Texas over the years and their impact on our ensemble, our development, my and me personally. And um, I just chose randomly uh, nine different artists um, who played with us. And I, I made a presentation. It's a video, a little clip, a video clip of each artist and then some discussion about each of them in regards to a certain uh, nine different words, that, uh, characteristics that they portray. But um, I found in all of them, uh, sometimes there's a literal story like with Evelyn Glenny and UFO Concerto of Michael Doherty. And other times it's uh, uh, a personal story like with David Childs and the Gregson Euphonium Concerto. But there's still a sense of this person is telling me something, mm-hmm. um, sharing something with me and um, uh, giving me the opportunity to create images and imagination, use your imagination and therefore be creative with your thought in terms of uh, um, having a message come across. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, the um, the imagine, imagination, right, the mind, it's a very powerful thing, right? And so I feel like our ability to use it in unique ways specific to each individual is I think what allows, like one band playing the same piece of music that another band is playing. If you've heard, if you heard one, why would you go listen to another band play it? Well, it's because maybe you take something away from what the other group imagined the performance to be. How do they interpret it? I mean, interpretation, you know, it's a huge thing. Um, like for instance, uh, what was the song we did earlier? Um, was it the Blood, Sweat, and Tears song, right? It's not theirs, but they interpret it in a different way from the original author's intention, which gives it a different feel. It allows the audience to imagine something different. Yeah, good point, really good point. So um, now, you know, speaking of, of um, things that you guys have done in uh, University of um, North Texas, uh, Mary was mentioning on the break the the winds of Nagual, mm. and uh, I I know she wants to talk a little bit about that. And I believe you are the conductor of this particular recording, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and uh, perhaps we'll get a little bit into your interpretation of it as well. So I'll let Mary take it away. Yeah. So um, uh, when you brought up the Doll Symphonietta and um, the parable, the Persichetti. Um, I figured, you know, and, and like before anything, when I brought up to the guys, I was like, I want to have Corporon on. Um, we were all like kind of taking bets on how much classical music would end up on this playlist <laughs> a little bit. And, you know, we've got a really good mix, but um, seeing the Colgrass end up on here, um, it just seemed like there was no better place for it. It definitely fits and um, the winds of Nagual, like uh, just the story that's behind it, as we're starting to, starting to talk about, you know, program versus, um, you know, interpretive 
storytelling. Um, there's a lot within Winds of Nagual we could go with. So uh, just real quick, um, the Winds of Nagual is a, um, I call it a tone poem. I'm not sure if that's exactly what it is, um, but it, it tells the story of Don Juan, which um, another composer who also did that was uh, Strauss. And um, so uh, when I listen to Winds of Nagual, I definitely hear a little bit of Strauss in it, but um, I've got some things I'd like to talk about just to like pick on through this conversation. But um, one thing about this particular recording that um, Corporal wanted to do, which was actually, was it two years ago, three years ago now at UNT? Yeah, it was right yeah. before the, the year, it was the year of the shutdown. Yeah, right? Yeah. Like that fall, probably. Right. right. The last time we were operative, um, mm -hmm. right at the end, uh, we played as though we thought we weren't going to have a chance to play again. Yeah. And, and one thing that I really liked, because you touched on this earlier, Professor, where um, people always want like a visual something with what they're doing now. And um, we did this with American Gothic and Michael Darty in the fall as well, where we like projected paintings and things for each movement. But one thing that they did for Winds of Nogual, which um, I'm sure Professor will talk about, was the introduction from Midwest with um, Michael Kograss, right? Right. And it, yeah, it's like six minutes of uh, discussion, which was, um, and it's, it's kind of funny, Professor introduced the piece and then comes and sits at his podium and then they talk for like six minutes and then um, it like seamlessly goes into the E-flat clarinet solo and stuff. Um, but just a rundown of how many movements are in this real quick. So um, it's based in, uh, or nine movements. It's about what, 30 minutes total? A little less, I think. Than yeah, 30. a little less. Um, and it's technically a grade seven, which you don't see many grade sevens uh, out there. Um, but it's uh, the first five minutes or so, it, he sets up uh, Don Juan emerging from the mountains in the desert. Um, and then there's about a minute of Carlos versus Don Juan. Um, and then Don Gennaro appears and has a couple movements um, and he messes with Carlos. Um, and then Carlos stares at the river and becomes a bubble, which is uh, one of my favorite parts of this piece. I just think it's so cool how they make that happen. Um, and then there's a gate of the gate, G-A-I-T of power. Um, and then the last three movements are uh, the more substantial um, parts of the work in terms of time. Um, the seventh movement is asking twilight for calmness and power. And it's five minutes, and then Don Juan clowns for Carlos, which is seven minutes, and that's the biggest section. And then the last conversation and farewell. So, um, Professor, when you programmed this, um, so, well, just tell me uh, what struck you to put Winds of Nagual on that concert? Because you just said, you know, at a certain point, it, we didn't know when we get to play it again. I'm sure that's not where you started, but were you thankful to have this on that concert if you had to choose? A... Yeah, I was. I yeah. was. Um, I waited a long time to play it here at North Texas. Um, the first time I did it was at Michigan State, and we did it in conjunction with uh, the Midwest Band and Orchestra Clinic. 
Um, we were the first, Michigan State was the first college band to be invited to play at Midwest other than Vanderbilt, who has always been the house band. Mm -hmm. um, is it Vanderbilt? No, yes, Chicago. Am I, not Vanderbilt, uh, help me. Chicago. Uh, Everybody's yelling at the screen right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I, anyway, I'll, again, a ball brain, a ball brain. I'll take that excuse. Um, it's not Vanderbilt. Vander Cook. Vander Oh, Cook. okay. Yeah, that I shook my head right. and there it came. The um, only one I could think of was Vandergrift. Right. And I'm like, that's not and, Chicago. And, uh, so we, we were there representing the Big Ten. And, um, uh, and as part of that, we played our concert. But this was when Midwest was a little concerned about new music being too uh, off-putting to, to high school band conductors, public school teachers. So they decided to have a midnight session for the first time, which was where we were, we were to play the uh, Winds of Nagual with Michael being present and talking about the piece. And of course, that was done at 11 o'clock. Music teachers can't tell time. So the midnight session, which was at 11, following already an hour and a half concert we did with the Wind Symphony and uh, Symphonic Band, it was we were pretty beat up by the end of the night, but um, it was a great experience. And this this talk that Michael did, the the narration that I played here, um, was uh, um, uh, the way he wanted it done. He said, "I don't want to talk about the piece." I'd rather share the story and my motivation for writing it and then just have you come in at the at the last line of my narration. So that was all his preference. So I thought when we did it here, uh, it was a wonderful opportunity to recreate that evening. And yeah. it was funny, I got a lot of requests after that for this for the uh, tape. Um, oh, we're doing Winston McWall this year, can we can we have a copy of the tape? The tape. I said, sure. You know, I'll be happy to send it to you. So I think it it uh, um, it got played in front of a lot of performances that year because of people remind remembering that it was there and knowing that they could get it. I I recorded it at Cincinnati and with a, uh, a really great group, and um, that was the second time I went back to it. And then, 24 years here, I hadn't played it. Um, we it had never been played here, and one of wow. the reasons is it's a seven. <laughs> yeah, it's a seven it's, plus you got to have the exact right people to play it. Yeah, the instrumentation's uh, yeah, a monster. Really, you really need to, you know. And I I thought, well, this is this is the year to do it. I I mean, I looked at our after auditions, I looked at our personnel, and I have to say, I was intimidated to try it because when you have a a really fantastic model performance of it recorded, which is way different than playing it in person. You're, you're a little uh, reticent to go back to something that difficult. And um, as it turns <laughs> out, it's every bit as good a performance as the recorded performance I have from Cincinnati. So, um, so again, but it is really a programmatic piece, absolutely. And it's about this dissertation uh, and, and, um, and there's all sorts of questions about this. Carlos Castaneda at UCLA was in anthropology and wrote this book about his experiences with Don Juan Matisse, uh, an Indian sorcerer, uh, very different than the Don Juan that Strauss picked. And um, yep. 
and uh, the drug culture of the Native Americans. And, uh, um, and he purportedly went through these experiences with, I mean, he said it was a real life thing. It really happened to him. Mm -hmm. And there've been all sorts of uh, other anthropological writings discounting this story and taking him on and calling him a fake. And that doesn't matter. The book is the book. The story is the story, <laughs> whether it's real or not. And so Colgrass read this story and wanted to write a piece that portrayed the story. So he actually borrows events from the novel well, mm -hmm. dissertation, some people say it's a novel, that, that uh, uh, and it like uh, becomes a bubble uh, that, it, you know, everybody has their um, uh, element that they identify mm -hmm. with in the Native American culture. And it so happens that uh, uh, Carlos, uh, uh, Carlos's uh, uh, identification was with water so in his hallucinations, he would become a bubble and float on the river and so on. Um, and so there are specific stories like the Gate of Power where, where uh, Don Juan teaches Carlos to run in the dark mm -hmm. and, um, and not fall and trip. And, but the piece has falling and tripping in it when Don, you hear, you hear um, Don Juan run and it's fantastic. And then you hear Carlos try to follow him and he slips and falls and you know, so it's all these kind of things that are portrayed. A lot of vernacular music in it, right? Mariachi mm -hmm. music, Indian yeah. music, and various kinds of uh, um, uh, Don Gennaro really has kind of a, uh, it's kind of a vulgar character in the book and makes fun of Don Juan, or makes fun of Don Juan for taking on Carlos as an understudy. He thinks he's foolish. and mm -hmm. then, this, that he has no business learning these great um, secrets of the brujos. So anyway, uh, it's so, I mean, it's our Till Oil and Spiegel or our yes. Don Juan or our, in that sense, it is very much, I mean, you know, Strauss was the storyteller. Um, I mean, you know, when you write the head of Till Oil and Spiegel bouncing down or, or Berlioz in Symphony Fantastique, it's our <laughs> Symphony Fantastique where the head bounces down the steps and into the basket. I mean, that literal, it's very literal. So I, um, when we recorded it in Cincinnati, I uh, went to edit it in the mountains of California, in the, in the topography that the piece occurred in, or the story. And every day, Jack Stamp and I are driving down the mountain from our engineer's home at the end of the day, I'm hearing this music and just seeing, actually being in the scene that, that this is supposed to have happened. And now I actually live uh, as part of the year in, uh, in the same kind of land uh, mm -hmm. and, and drive through these uh, high desert areas where this is all supposed to have occurred. So um, very visual for me, a very important part of me having done the piece twice. So when we did it here, um, it took me a lot of time to get the courage up to do it again. Yeah, um, you just things come out so well, you don't want to mess with it. You don't want to have it not be the way you want it to be. And well, so I'm so proud of the performance that North Texas gave of that piece. It was really good. Yeah. And let, let's talk about the instrumentation just for a second, because yeah. it is just insane. Like, just to give you a rundown, there are six flute parts, all of them double piccolo. And there are two alto flutes, which you mic'd both of, I believe. 
there are no actual bassoons. There are instead, it's it's marked contra bassoon. I believe you use two players, or is it two parts? Or contra bass clarinets and contra bassoons. So yes, about that combination of sound. Um, in fact, I learned a lot from that piece early on. Usually, when I have a contra bassoon part, I'll double it with an E flat contra uh, bass clarinet or mm -hmm. a double B flat contra bass clarinet to get that growl. And now lately because we have this phenomenal instrument i've been throwing in bass saxophone too yeah and get this kind of really meaty low reed sound that sounds like like eight string basses you know uh, forgive me did you actually use uh yeah i don't i don't think you did um because there's only soprano and alto sax in the score right right, right. yeah so did you did actually use, use the, bass no not not on winds of nagual i had yeah been. well wait a minute or did we I don't know. I have to go back to the video. Well, I'm looking at the video. I don't think you did. Someone's yeah, got I his tenor on the floor. Yeah. But yeah, you've got all the clarinets, but no saxes. Yeah. Just a couple saxes. Yeah. Um, but I mean, just like continuing to go down the score, there are there are six trumpet parts plus a separate flugelhorn part. There are six horn parts. There are six. This one gets me. There are six trombone parts to this piece. <laughs> Um, two of those are bass trombones. Yeah, two bass um, trombones, yeah. There's a timpani part, but also five separate percussion parts. Um, and uh, it's got everything from, like, bongos to parsifal bells to timbales and tubular bells and all the keyboards. There's four separate uh, suspended cymbals and three sets of crash cymbals, five cowbells. Like, there's so much going on. And a partridge in a pear tree. Right. Yes, indeed. Well, well Michael Colgrass is a percussionist. That's what I thought. So. So. And a, and a very good one. Yeah, and, and um, my uh, my roommate's Was. a percussionist, but um, I'm always fascinated to see what percussionists think of the pieces that we play in band, and um, I've played, I've not played Winds of Nagual before. Um, but is it, um, what's his other piece? The big one. Arctic dreams. Yeah. I've played Arctic dreams and, um, the percussionist always said that his parts for percussion feel better than most anybody else's right. in right. the world. So at least in terms of like anxiety versus performance. Yeah. I'm, I'm ashamed of myself for while we're on percussion for leaving off and the mountains rising nowhere of Joseph Schwantner <laughs> because, uh, that was another life-changing experience for me. But it seems that another connector in all of these pieces, I was at the premieres. Yeah. Because I was at the premiere of the Schwantner. I was at the premiere of, of um, or close to the premiere of Prague. I was at the premiere of Winds of Nagual. Um, so, mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's this imprint that these certain pieces make on you, you know. And, and of course, uh, Schwantner's pieces an even bigger percussion piece than than yes. coal grasses, if you can believe that. Yes. And um, uh, so you end up with uh, these sonic moments that change the sound of the wind band forever. Mm -hmm. And I think that Schwantner's was Schwantner is one of those people who did that, and so is coal grass. Another one is uh, um, who is uh, a great percussionist and conductor, Bill Kraft was timpanist mm -hmm. with the LA Phil, his music, dialogues and entertainments, another really big changing moment. Um, 
these benchmark pieces or pillar pieces, as I like to call them, that we've structured the whole wind band on top yeah. of. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, I almost felt like my spirit, you know, was that I should go do peyote or something to do uh, <laughs> wall. You know, I mean, it just it just is so impactful when you're in that piece by the time you're in it. I, it's mm -hmm. something it's not any different i don't think than when you hear about actors talking about a character they go so deep into they sometimes have to trouble getting out of that character once the film is over yeah uh, hear them talk about it that or the or the play is over on broadway and um that how they have to separate themselves away from say they play a really dark character you know and they, mm -hmm. they're by nature they're not they might be pulled into that uh, world and have trouble letting go of it after they're mm -hmm. done. That's kind of how, not that not that it, it's a, a dark character in Winston and Gwal, but it's an interesting character. Yes. And it really, Michael made this about himself too, which was very interesting mm -hmm. um, because he had a moment, he, he spoke about a moment in his career. There's the, thing at the end where Car Carlos uh, exerts his will and jumps into uh, off a cliff and be into a thousand views of the world, a big spiritual transformation. And um, Colgress loved to tell a story that he was, you know, he was playing, he was in the original uh, West Side Story Orchestra, played in the New York Phil, did a lot of Broadway. He was, you know, uh, living it up in New York, playing just all sorts of things. And he said one day he was walking down the street and he couldn't remember if he was coming from or going to a gig. Yeah. He got so busy. <laughs> and then he realized his heart was in composing, not playing. Wow. So he, he gave it all up. He quit playing, moved to Canada and just made his living writing. Now that's a big jump. That hit, that's his jump. Yeah. Off the cliff. His, and, um, uh, and he, he, thought of it that way, I think, when he read the book, that this was also about his spiritual journey, jumping into a whole new world of composition. And of course, he went all sorts of ways with relaxation and yoga and uh, player anxiety. Mm -hmm. and he had all sorts of different lectures that he developed a spirituality of his own approach along with his writing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's why he resonated so much with the story. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I and we could talk for hours and hours about like every single piece on this list, but um, I think that the Winds of Nagual, it, it, I mean, it makes sense that it's on your list. It is absolutely. Uh, I I think I would put Schwantner in the same boat, um, but those two pieces, uh, they changed how we listen to programmatic works for wind band. I think, um, and put it more in a. I don't know if serious is the right, right word for it, but um, when you go to listen to like a symphony by a wind band, most people don't sit down and expect something you'd hear on an orchestral stage either. And I think that one thing Colgrass does really well is that he mixes the colors and he, he plays the instrument on stage through his score. Um, his orchestration is just, um, it's so evocative of, of what he's getting at. And I, I don't know if it's cause you know, that was his true calling or if, if um, 
you know, maybe one of his dreams brought it to him, like how to, how to put it, but, um, you know, it, it just, it hits a different part of, of how the wind band sounds in general, like, especially the opening, like the way the desert is set up is just so ingenious. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I'll listen to the winds of Nagual on a really short car ride. And all I get to listen to is the desert. Um, and you know, that's bad for me because again, we want to listen to complete works, but you know, sometimes, you know, that opening of that piece will still get me somewhere. But well, one thing, um, I know Sean was a little jealous of me asking about this one. Sean, do you have a question or anything? You know, the reason why I was jealous was because I've gotten to play this piece twice, luckily with, with two different conductors. Um, but the one time that I played it, I was able to play the, the flugelhorn solo. Oh, yeah. And honestly, I don't think there's ever been any, any, any better writing for flugelhorn in classical repertoire before than that. And I remember just playing it and doing it. And, and everyone's like, like, it's like, this sounds so good. Like, how do you like, how, I feel like it's because I've listened to other people do it. And it just sounds like it's just one of those things that just makes sense. Um, I'm gonna throw this out there. The flugelhorn is the most underused piece of equipment in classical repertoire and should be used more. Um, Cause I think it, it's I such agree. a, it's, it's such a cool timbre and the tone of it is just, oh, I could go on and on forever. Um, but uh, Professor Corporon, it is time to get back to some more pop. I know I don't wanna talk about that music, but we're gonna talk about some Paul Simon, some Lady Smith, Black Mombazo, Diamonds. Oh yes. The- diamonds on the soles of her shoes um mary wrote mary chose the recording not from the official paul simon youtube but because of the long first comment about the music um this is such a unique experience um i know we've we've talked a lot a bit about how um talked a lot about classical music and i know we've been jumping in between a little bit of folk and pop and and stuff like that but why why did this song come up on your desert playlist <laughs> the uh world music cross-cultural relationship which of course paul simon got in trouble for you know he was oh he's trying to uh he's a white guy what's he doing on that stage you know um bringing all these african musicians together lady smith black mumbaza and all the players i watched it the other morning again I, you know every now and then on my um iPhone, like a performance will come up and they were in, in South Africa doing the, doing this concert and there, I don't know, 20,000, 30,000 people there. None of them seem to be objecting to him doing this music. Um, it, it drives me nuts that th- this latest uh, uh, push to, to eliminate the multiculturalism that we've always been about in music. Um, that the, the cross relationships that we've all had. And I thought he was so brave to take this on. Um, um, and I hope he made a lot of money because it's, it's an unbelievably beautiful uh, uh, collaboration. And he surely brought a lot of African musicians to the foreground that would never have been known in our country for any reason. Uh, if you look at the ensemble, just, you know, everybody, the great musicians who were playing. Um, but um so there was that uh somehow he seemed to fit so well into it and be outside of it and in it at the same time almost like an advocate for it but then also part of it that whole production that went on 
and uh, um, and then just the the groove, the laid back groove of it. When when Lady Smith Black Mombasa starts to move, and um, and they they do kind of a, a round dance as they're singing, and they tap one shoe and then the other shoe, and I mean it's just so uh, intrinsic. The musical moment is so intrinsic. Um, uh, I just did a presentation uh, a couple of days ago in in Canada uh, via Zoom, and they have a thing they have to read before every uh, musical event now that uh, pays tribute to the indigenous people. And um, I, I wrote it down because they were talking about, and I think it pertains also to uh, the indigenous African people, um, what the Native Americans say about music I'm going to try and grab it real quick. Um, yeah, because um, I, I just I'm, I've asked for the the whole thing that they read because I think it's so interesting. I'd like to use it in a chapter someday. Um, uh, but that one, it's a very short statement. Let me find it. Um, I think I put it at the end of this. Um, no, that, that isn't it. Shoot, where is it? Give me one more second here. Well, I'm not finding it, but basically it was music. Music is the sound of hope, something to that extent. That the, that the Native Americans believe that music is the sound of hope. And um, I, I just love that thought. And, and in the African-American culture, uh, I get that feeling from, you know, no matter how difficult life is, when music begins to happen, it, it just transcends the difficulty of life that many people are experiencing or can experience. Um, and uh, we had a visitor on campus who uh, recently a uh, applicant for one of her jobs. And she mentioned something similar that I thought was very interesting. She says, after all, music is how feelings sound. And I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> I mean, and anytime somebody says something brilliant like that, I grab it and write it down and go, I'm gonna I like that. that. Yeah, music is how feelings sound. And music is the sound of hope. Both those things just really hit me. And, um, uh, so there's that. Then there's just the the, the groove of the piece, and it uh, seemed to fit so well with Paul Simon, who's you know, I mean, listen to early things of Simon and Garfunkel, and they're very folk song ish, and beautiful, and have become a, a woven into American culture. All of their tunes, but but at the same time, they're storytellers. Cuckoo, cachoo, Mrs. Robinson, you know. Mm. Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? I mean, some of these lines that just, bam, hit you right between the eyes. Um, uh, and uh, and capture a time period. So I thought this was another one of those times with this music. Right. It's so interesting because a lot of people say that... Um, Paul Simon is up in the league with great wordsmiths, such as a Stephen Sondheim, Shakespeare, um, 
And if it's okay with you, I, I have a little bit of the poetry that he has set for this song. So I'm going to read a little bit of it Great. really quickly, which is, um, here, here's, here he goes. Um, he's a poor boy, empty as a pocket, empty as a pocket with nothing to lose. Sing ta-na-na, ta-na-na-na. She got diamonds on the soles of her shoes. She got diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Diamonds on the sole of her shoes. Diamonds on the sole of her shoes. Diamonds on the sole of her shoes. People say she's crazy. She got diamonds on the sole of her shoes. Well, that's one way to lose these walking blues. Diamonds on the sole of her shoes. She was physically forgotten. Then she slipped into my pocket with my car keys. She said, you've taken me for granted because I please you wearing those diamonds. I think he says diamonds on the sole of your shoes many, many times. Um, is that a reference to something, do you think? Or is that just a, maybe a visualization that he created? Oh, I think it's both. To, to try and figure out exactly what he was thinking. Uh, I, I couldn't even begin to go there. I'd love to ask him that question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, because uh, I'm sure that there's a double entendre there, but I, I'm not exactly sure what it is. What do you guys think, Hunter, Mary? Any thoughts on diamonds on the sole of your shoes? Well, personally, near the end, he says, people say I'm crazy. I got diamonds on the soles of my shoes. Well, that's one way to lose these walking blues, diamonds on the soles of my shoes. So I think that his ultimate punchline was actually to get your feet up off the ground to look at the bottoms of them, kind of like, you know, reading the roses a little bit. I got diamonds on the soles of my shoes, so no step's going to be wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's why I think he was getting it. And I mean, that's what the piece, that's what the song kind of does for me, you know, and what Professor was saying about, you know, it just makes you want to go somewhere or it transcends, you know, a lot of what we feel in life and it lifts us up. And a, a lot of music like this, you know, it's got that that background to it. A lot of um, the music with um, some really deep African roots. It's all it's not even really meant to be happy necessarily. It's just meant to transcend you and, and put you somewhere. So maybe you can take those feelings back and walk a little lighter. So that's that's what I thought. And before I throw it over to Hunter, I'm sorry, buddy. I just thought that when I thought about this song, it just felt like it echoed exactly what you were saying about how music does transcend language. And I think that's such a, a powerful message because that's basically what our podcast is about. Transcending language, having a finding a way that music can speak to all of us through different variations and ways. <laughs> A lot of elements of African music are repetition because it's about getting into a mindset. Um, they want to uh, when 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 in a lot of African cultures they want to try and uh, get something experiential out of it, right? It's it's the music is not necessarily music. The music is a vehicle for whether it's something spiritual or something ritualistic or whether it's something religious or whether it's something you know. And a lot of cultures do that, right? Where it's music is um, something more than just music. It's meant to be something higher. 
so I feel like repetition is meant to uh, focus you, right? It's meant to, meant you're not really focusing on other things. It's this one chant almost that, um, uh, almost like a mantra by which, and, and you know, you have to decide what is going to be that mantra that you repeat. And we do it in other kinds of music too. Western music does it as well, where, you know, you have an ostinato that's meant to continually be a, uh, almost like a drone by which you can um, uh, focus on other things. You know what I mean? So that's sort of what I got from it. We can build on our thoughts and continue our, our dreams. Um, I have, I have exactly. no thought because I found this quote. I, I realized where I'd written it down. Um, the, the exact quote is, music is an agent of hope. Hmm. And maybe diamonds on the soles of your shoes is the hope of a better situation. You're so, you're you're in such a good spot that you can afford to put diamonds on the soles of your shoes. Oh, that's very yeah. good. Which I is like not that. where we are, but it's where we'd like to be. You know that that kind of. I have so much money that I put my diamonds on my shoes, on the soles. I walk on my diamonds. I don't even wear them. I walk on them. <laughs> Yeah. So maybe, maybe that's part of it too. You know, the right. idea of extravagance mm. could be. I like that. Mm -hmm. So, are you also a fan of uh, Simon and Garfunkel? Oh sure. Yeah. 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 Um, again, lyric the lyrics, and uh, I guess everybody remembers the tunes of their uh, youth or youth plus a little. You know, I, I feel so fortunate to to have been um, maturing, growing up, whatever, during a time when those artists were around, Joni Mitchell, Simon and Garfunkel. Um, but I also fell for um, Billy Joel. I mean, yeah. I'm a ballad person, you know, um, I, 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 uh, I. Um, and that's probably due to my mom, who was a singer piano bar player uh, back in the old days when there was no karaoke, the, the person playing behind the piano would sit there all night for five hours and play for people while they had <laughs> drinks and people would come in and sing their favorite song and pass the mic around. And, and, um, uh, um, and so I heard a lot of great music, you know, every Saturday morning when I was supposed to do the vacuuming, Put the LP on. Who's it going to be? It's going to be Tony Bennett. It's going to be Count Basie. It's going to be Ella Fitzgerald. It's going to be Peggy Lee. It's going to be uh, um, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra. Uh, you know, just on and on. And um, so the idea of and every Broadway musical known to man. I mean, I know the lyrics to Kismet. Ah, he knows that. There's an obscure one. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean, so you know, we wore out you know, all of the great uh, musicals on the weekends. So that that uh, American song, great American songbook and and um, all the great phrasing that various people do and did. Um, my, my mom wasn't a jazz uh, instrumental listener, but that hit me when I got to high school and college. But the, the fact that, you know, when Louis Armstrong plays the trumpet, it's a, he sings exactly the same way he plays the trumpet. Mm -hmm. There's just no really does. Just words, but it's still exactly the same thing. And so this idea of um, uh, 
of of these great artists um, with real depth versus you know the costuming dancing uh lighting uh video you know the, i mean everything many of the singers and i it makes me sound old right many of the singers that we see as geniuses build as geniuses because they won a grammy have won the grammy out of production value not out of the fact that they can sing that's why tony bennett told lady gaga you know to to consider um, the fact that there may be some other star on the horizon that's going to out Lady Gaga her, but she has a great voice. Start singing, you know. Mm -hmm. She did, and oh my goodness, what happened there, right? But you know, a lot of people who people uh, the general public think of as singers can't sing at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, if they had to just stand on stage and sing. They'd have a hard time making it through a tune. So. That was not the case with some of these artists we're talking about uh, from the late 60s into the 70s. I mean, um, and uh, I, so I tend to gravitate towards people that have skill. Mm -hmm. uh, the Eagles, you know, or folks that really uh, have been able to sustain it, you know, and um, uh, the Stones. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> amazing uh, what some of these folks have been able to do. Mm -hmm. I just wonder, you know, about some of the hot flash people we see, you, you know, making the millions and getting the Grammy and disappearing um, mm -hmm. from the scene. But there were some just brilliant poets. You know, and I feel like this is such an off tangent question, but I feel like you've been exposed to just so much music. Um, were you were you not surprised that you you went into music, or do you think you could have seen yourself doing something else? Absolutely not. I mean, I yeah. made a decision to go into music in the seventh grade, huh. and which was one, uh, two years after I started playing the clarinet, so or maybe three. But uh, no, I I'd I'd be a mess if I hadn't gone into music. I would have, you know, I don't know what I would have done, but um, I was lucky enough to find it, and. Um, it was life changing and saving for me in a lot of ways. Uh, so um, I thought at first I would be a teacher. And then then I thought, no, I'll be a studio player. And then I thought, no, I'll be an orchestral clarinet player. And then I thought, finally, you know what? I think I'm going to be a teacher. <laughs> and I went back the other way, you know, yeah. but um, but uh, with a lot of good advice from my mentors at that moment where I had to make that decision. But um, um, yeah, it, so it's hard for me sometimes. I have to really remind myself that a lot of people don't get to their calling, especially teaching college, you know, that if someone comes in as a freshman and is not sure, it's okay. You know, it's not okay for very long, but it's okay in music, as you guys know, you've got to decide pretty early or at least be invested in it in throughout high school, even if you're not sure you're going to make a, live, a living out of it. Um, you've got to, you've got to build skill and it's hard to get started late. And I used to believe that until I heard Barry Green's story, who was principal mm. based Cincinnati symphony and is, uh, uh, was, he's now retired. Um, yep. He started the double bass at age 18 and had won the principal symphony job by 20. Wow. He started when he was 21, but he, he was at Indiana 
and in three years went from, I think I'll give up the tuba and play bass, tuba and the marching band and drum major, mm -hmm. play bass, and ends up principal bass of one of the greatest orchestras in our country. Born to do it. I mean, obviously, there's just no other, there's no yeah. other explanation. Just born to do it. Does that make you mad at all? Or oh, does yeah. that make you more? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm mad. I'm mostly mad at my mother. She has perfect, had perfect pitch. Right. I yeah. could lay on the piano and she could tell me every note that I was playing, you know, right. um, lay on the keyboard. It drove me nuts because if you could, if you could kind of get through a tune, she could she could accompany you on the next time through it right. chord progressions and all and all natural it wasn't it wasn't schooled at all she stopped her piano lessons at eight seventeen or 18 i think so but she had this gift you know and um so now and then you know i i'm i'm not a gifted person at all i'm a hard-working person uh, i i'm not a very talented person hard-working person right i know talented people uh and that's not me <laughs> i mean I, i've been around some pretty talented people but um uh, but it is possible you know to to through hard work and um application to to get there right right um thank you for letting me go off that tangent for a little while oh yeah it's okay sorry i went on, on too <laughs> yeah, that's okay sorry. it's okay sorry. i'm gonna pass it over to hunter because hunter's gonna talk about some Appalachian Spring and bring us into the the end portion of our podcast. Hunter, take it away. Sure, yeah. So like Sean said, the uh, the next uh, and our, our final song on your list is the Appalachian Spring by um, Aaron Copeland. And for those who don't know Aaron Copeland, uh, he was sort of, he's sort of like when you think of classical America, you know, the, the classic Americana sound, he's sort of like the quintessential person that most people think of, I think, when you think like, Connor, right? like think out west prairie and and the appalachian area right and so um the first thing that i have here is in our in our notes you mentioned that you wanted to specifically have us listen to a bernstein recording rather than copeland himself uh as conductor and i'm just curious <laughs> as to what was what was your reasoning for that uh <laughs> I don't know, sometimes when the composer conducts, mm -hmm. um, and I know Copeland studied conducting, so I don't want to get, I'm, I'm looking across my office here and I have a picture of Aaron Copeland staring at me. <laughs> <laughs> He's watching you. I, I don't, I, I have no business criticizing anything he does, but I have played for him. Oh, really? I have played for him and, uh, uh, and observed him in rehearsal. And it was difficult. Uh, to um, sometimes uh, people come along. It, I would compare it, maybe not quite as bad, but to Stravinsky, Robert Kraft and Stravinsky. Every, everybody will tell you that Stravinsky was not the best interpreter of his music. Now, I know that sounds crazy, <laughs> but that Robert Kraft is the one to listen to. And um, because they, they feel the music and they are the music, I, I get that, but they sometimes can't transmit it as well as someone mm -hmm. else can, right? And so you have these these folks who come along who have that ability to just to, to make it even more um, authentic than the original, compo than the composer, 
on the podium. I, I remember so well, because I'm going to look back to Krennic for just a minute and think about when, when that, when Dream Sequence was premiered, uh, Baylor had been prepared by uh, Richard um, uh, Floyd and beautifully and wonderfully. I heard the rehearsals prior to Krennic getting there and it was fantastic. Krennic conducted it and the piece did was not well served, but it was Krennic conducting. So it was a trade-off, you know, um, uh, and uh, Copeland knew what he wanted on the podium, absolutely, but um, wasn't always able to get it. So there is a skill requirement for conducting, I believe. Mm -hmm. There's a certain amount of uh, uh, skill and knowledge uh, even though you may have complete knowledge of the piece, you may not have the skill to bring it into, to have it materialize. Mm -hmm. um, with Copeland, and there's a little frustration I would notice from him on the podium occasionally, the few times I was around him, um, uh, in not being able to get what he wanted. Right. And I remember specifically watching a rehearsal at Cal State Northridge. Um, uh, where uh, David Whitwell had had him in, in the sixties. And he stopped and he said, to, he was talking to the a percussionist and he said, I know this can be done. I've heard it done before. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of chastising the player. And, um, uh, and the player just couldn't get the sound. He worked and worked on a triangle sound. And what it turned out to be was he wanted almost a crotale sound, a really bright sound that the triangle maybe could. The guy kept going up to a stiffer beater. You could see him. He was going down the line. Bam, bam. No, that's mm -hmm. not it. Bam. And um, there's this little solo in uh, emblems. Bing, 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 bing. It just, and it was just maybe he didn't pick the right instrument or maybe who knows. But anyway, so I, I thought, you know, Bernstein has long been uh, uh, a great advocate and model for Copeland's music. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, that's that's basically it. I just think uh, there's a trade-off whenever you take the, the creator off the podium. Have you ever seen film of Strauss conducting his pieces? No, I don't think I have. There's nothing more boring. <laughs> or, or, I mean, you hear this unbelievable music. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was Ein Helden Leib. But anyway, he's conducting and he has this deadpan look <laughs> and he's turning the score. And at one point he looks at his watch. Nice. Score. It's unbelievable. And the orchestra is just raging, you know, and you, you hear all these stories about Strauss being a famous conductor, mm -hmm. but this is him as an old man conducting. And I would, I would offer that maybe he's not the best advocate at that moment. Maybe by that time, all these orchestral musicians have played this piece so many times that they've, they've gone by his energy level and are playing it at the energy level that he wrote, not that he's mm -hmm. exhibiting. But, you know, I think that it, you see that in a lot of artistry, whether it's, when it's, whether it's conducting or acting, like obviously script writers, right? They're not necessarily actors. You ask them to go up and interpret their own work. They know what they want to see, but they physically, they cannot do it themselves. Um, or you see like teachers and we see this a lot with teachers, you know, in the in the teaching. I teach high school. And um, you see, like, all these people who come in to do professional development, they have the idea about what's the quote-unquote 
uh, most practical and best way of teaching, and yet you ask them to specifically do it, and they have no idea how to do it. They know the theory behind it, but they can't execute it. Right. And some people, like you said, they just have a talent for it. It's it's a natural, innate, born ability that you can work at to get better, but they don't necessarily have the capacity to execute their vision. Yeah, that's a really good point. Right, because I think we've all sat through, like, I, I don't know if you have, like, professional development where you're sitting there and you're listening, and you're like, that worked, that looks great on paper, but this is never going to work in real life. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the, the other thing I've been thinking as we've, bounce around on all these composers that I hadn't thought of till just now is that Colgrass, um, Schwantner, Husa, Copeland, Persichetti, they're all people that I had the great fortune to meet, mm -hmm. Krennic and, 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 and others, but maybe the imprint of that experience also influences. Now I didn't get to meet Dahl, uh, but, but, um, uh, but I met somebody who met him and <laughs> caused the piece to happen. So it's transference. Personal, yeah, these transfers and personal uh, interactions, impress, even though they were short, made such an impression on me that I keep coming back to their music. Um, over the years, some of these folks I've known for a long, long time. These, mm -hmm. are, these are kind of an earlier generation. There's a lot of people in this generation that I work with regularly you know, too. And, and I tend to, I tend to gravitate towards their music, Doherty and McTee and, um, uh, Giroux and, uh, to Kelly and Grantham and a lot of folks that, uh, James David and a lot of different people that I'm, I, I have a chance to work with Joe Turin. Um, and so Paul Dooley, I mean, that's kind of a new gen. Some of those are new generation. So there's uh, that personal connection that also influences you. I know Steve Steele at uh, uh, Northern Illinois had a tremendous connection with uh, David Maslanka. And oh, really? A lot of recording of Maslanka and had a very personal relationship with him and therefore kind of became the Leonard Bernstein to Maslanka that, that uh, Bernstein was the Copeland. Steve became the conductor that was a great representative of Maslanka because of his personal relationship or interactions. So. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, and, and, you know, that this idea of like, you know, you know this person, so therefore you're more inclined towards their music or, you you know, you think of it first. Why do you think, and I guess this will be my last question for, for this piece for Copeland, which is, like I'd mentioned when we first started, Copeland is sort of like the definitive uh, person when you think of um, the Americana sound, right? I mean, there's been William Grant Still, there was Scott Joplin, there was... Um, uh, Charles Ives. <laughs> uh, and even Dvorak used a lot of uh, Americana. Cosa? What? I said Charles Ives. Oh, yeah, Charles Ives. Um, so why, what do you think about, in this case, Copeland particularly, uh, that makes his, his piece, particularly this one, and, and of course, uh, Rodeo as well, um, La like endure through to today, which maybe you could see some of the newer people you work with possibly fitting into that same category. Sure. Here's what's so, here's what's so amazing about Appalachian Spring. Mm -hmm. 
and I'm sure you know this, uh, uh, that wasn't the title of the piece. The piece was called Music for Martha. Really? And Martha Graham made it American by the way she staged it. And hmm. it, um, I heard a story from David, uh, uh, I'm looking at his picture. Anyway, some composers went to uh, Copeland's house <laughs> after he began to have trouble and moved deeper into Alzheimer's. And um, Copeland, uh, they went there to celebrate his birthday. And um, uh, <laughs> so they, they were talking to Copeland about, well, you're, you're, you're responsible for creating the American sound. And before he had Alzheimer's, he used to say, I am really, what are you talking about? I just write music. He didn't set out to create the American sound, but he became, you're right, the quintessential American composer. Mm -hmm. and, and it's just so interesting, but towards the end of his life, they, they moved into the piano to play something. He said, what are we doing here? I, I, would, I don't know why I'm here. He couldn't remember how to play the piano. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really, you know, sometimes you hear it goes the other way, but it was really sad. David Diamond, I was trying to think of, uh, who um, uh, was there and with some other composers. Um, but I think whether he meant to or not, doesn't matter. He did it. <laughs> and um, sometimes right. things are just, he, he may have discovered it rather than invented it. Uh, it kind of like Frederick Fennell in the wind ensemble. It was always there, but he just figured it out before anybody else did and discovered that, gee, if I play Mozart and Gabrielli and Dvorak and Holst and pull all this together and say, it's all mine, you know, under this big umbrella, then we'll just play it with different size groups that you, bingo, you had 1952 in the Eastman Wind Ensemble. Um, so uh, I think um, his music uh, somehow resonated and still does. Now with Rodeo, yeah, he set out to write cowboy music. I mean, mm -hmm. that became, and you know, didn't film help with all Yes, big time. So many film composers just said, well, this guy's done it. I'm just going to use it. I mean, there's so many people who have um, borrowed from Copeland. I recorded a piece called Copeland Portrait. Now there's a young band piece called Copeland Portrait that is actual just cut and pasted uh, bits of his tunes. But Copeland Portrait takes Copeland's style and, and um, writes a piece based on his style and channels Copeland as if Copeland had written another piece after Emblems. And um, very interesting how, how well it works. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I think he, all of these composers we've talked about, including the pop ones, have, are definitive. Um, they, their music, um, identifies a period in America's history and, and reaches out to our culture uh, and, and is not just contributes to our culture, but creates our culture. Um, mm -hmm. And so we all are left with these wonderful moments um, uh, that, that came out of their imagination, I think. And that, that's pretty cool. Um, and it doesn't matter what the discipline is, it still has this 
impact this this uh, um, picture of a of a time frame, you know, that, that captures uh, that moment in time forever. Uh, so, and for common people to grab onto, because I mean, you know, uh, it's like Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. I mean, you know, we use it for airline commercials. We use it for <laughs> anything we can grab onto it. So it's um, uh, it becomes part of the tapestry of, of the American story. And I, I was going to tell one other thing about this. This was kind of interesting because you were, we were talking earlier. I think that uh, Mary mentioned that symphonies aren't quite what uh, in wind groups aren't quite what you expect compared to say a the word symphony with an orchestra. And I was giving a lecture once in the Netherlands about American music. And I played a whole bunch of pieces. I think I might've played many of these pieces we've talked about for them. We're talking about it. And there were some composers in the room. And one of the composers raised his hand and said, um, don't the Americans have any sense of the great European tradition? And I said, they absolutely do. And they're doing in, in our inimitable way, they're doing everything they can do to avoid it. <laughs> that, you know, sure they know what a four movement symphony is, but they 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 also stop and think, what can I do that Beethoven and Mahler and Mozart and Haydn didn't already do? You know, right. so I don't find it surprising the twentieth. This was twentieth century discussion. Now we're twenty first, but we're coming coming back around. Now we're getting pieces again with the title symphony and four movements and wind band pieces. But for a while there, you know, uh, Copeland Emblems, who's music for Prague, Schwantner, Mountains Rising, Coldgrass Winds in the Gual, Persichetti. Well, he, there's a guy who wrote a classical symphony, but pro, um, uh, Parable and Masquerade, nope. So they were intentionally avoiding it, you know, and, mm -hmm. and just just to, to make their own way. So, um, I get it. I get why, uh, you know, the pieces were different, maybe just as big, a 30 minute piece, 35 minute piece, maybe just as big a piece, but not in the traditional European context. And um, that's just our mm -hmm. part. That's just our history happening. You know, our uh, composers taking a look at it in a different light. Yeah, and you wonder how the people, you know, 50 years from now will look at the the 20th century, the late 20th century composers, the way we look at, say, the, the Copelands and the Stravinsky's and, you know, will they see it the same way or will they always revert back to looking at, quote unquote, the masters, Stravinsky, Copeland, uh, Bernstein, you know, how will they, how will they view it? We don't know. No, we don't. Um, that's one of the reason, reasons I've been so committed to recording uh, our music. By our music, I mean wind, wind symphony music, because I want to at least leave it around for somebody to discuss whether or not it was worthwhile. I mean, I think it was. I think it is. I, I hope it always will be. But um, will there be symphony orchestras? Will there be anybody playing analog instruments 50 years from now? Or will it be like the Star Wars bar scene? <laughs> well, or will we be considered like like the uh, early music ensemble? You know, we got to teach people how to play these funny instruments that they used to play, um, mm -hmm. um, because now we don't. We it's all electronic or it's all whatever. Um, 
that that's that's always the question you know it is and yours is all certainly you do, all you can do is what's important to you right now you know what i mean mm -hmm. um, that's you can't be thinking about gosh this this ensemble could go away or this i mean you just you have to do which um what's there for you to do with the tools you have and um and then you know see what happens you know I, although we're not around to see what happens but <laughs> that's true and yours is certainly a, a a noble endeavor if ever there was one and mm -hmm. uh <laughs> and so with that being said now, we will take a quick break after which we will come back with our final section of the podcast. But first, uh, we'll take a, our, like I said, our, our uh, anchor-sponsored break, during which time, if you so wish to the listeners, you may look for us on social media. And the handles are as follows. Uh, on Twitter, we are at MusicSpeaks underscore podcast. On Instagram, we are MusicSpeaks underscore podcast. On Facebook, we are MusicSpeaks podcast. On TikTok, we are at Music Speaks underscore podcast. And on the YouTube, we are Music Speaks podcast. So uh, for those listening, stick with us. We'll be right back for our final section, our little quiz. We'll see you then. Thank you, Professor Eugene Corporon. And next time, we will find out what musical score John Williams has in emoji form via the quiz. That's Hunter Sagona, that's Mary Haddocks, and I'm Sean Ramkunis, and keep listening to What You Love.